0: Good evening, everybody. We're so glad you're here tonight. It's a new chapter in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation 11. Welcome online for those of you who are joining us. One couple of real quick announcements. May 14th is a day I'd like you to mark down. It's called Love Costa Mesa Day. Uh, we're going to be um, helping and participating in a lot of events uh, with a group from Love Costa Mesa. You can just go to lovecostamesa.org and look that up. Um, also we have Mother's Day coming up on the 8th, all the moms out there get to come, we have a couple of special things going on and treats passed out to moms and all that fun stuff, so those are the announcements I wanted to bring up today, I'm so glad you're all here, welcome to Lighthouse Community Church, we're going to be looking at probably one of the three most difficult chapters in this book to break down and take apart, because Chapter 11, just so you know, there is a ton of Old Testament energy in Chapter 11. We probably will not get through the whole, I can tell you, we're not going to get through the whole chapter tonight. We're, we're going to be looking at it from the perspective of, because it's so full of inner, uh, imagery, I want to be able to break that stuff down for you and open it up and so you can see what the, the imagery is really talking about. So if you do have a pencil and paper, if you have your notebooks with you and you have your notes out with you, um, please, you're going to need to mark down some extra scriptures so that you can go back and read some of the um, events from the Old Testament that John is referring to and God is telling John about. See, remember, John already knows all of these images and stories and and events in, in the Old Testament that have taken place. So as John is looking at this and writing it down and doing all of this reporting... To him, he's recollecting, oh yeah, that's from Zechariah 4, or that's from Ezekiel, or that's from, you know, that's from 2 Kings. He's going to be looking at all of these images, and him, he'll, he'll be writing these images down. And then he's reflecting on where this is in the Old Testament. So it's not written down for you in this chapter. So I'm going to help you to break it down a little bit and refer to some of those Old Testament stories so that you can know where we are talking about. So I probably only want to start with reading. Let's just read. um, Yeah, let's just read the first three verses to start with because I want to there's a whole ton of stuff in every one of these. I'll be mindful of my time and we'll mark down where we stopped and we'll continue um, next week. So here we go. Uh, I am reading from the ESV. Somebody asked me tonight this I like to read from the ESV or the NASB when I am doing uh, Bible study, I like their syntax follows the Greek the closest. But um, if, you, if you have your favorite Bible, your NIV, the NLT, all of those, please understand, whatever Bible that you are blessed by God's words, that's the one you want to use. I use the ones that, I, that help me do what I want to do. And please know that I get questions all the time, say, oh, what's the best Bible to use? And I always have to ask them, well, what do you want to do with the Bible? You know, do you want to read it like a novel at night? There are certain Bibles that you would do that with. If you want to go into inductive study, there are Bibles that are centered around that. So we can go through all of that later on. Um, I used to teach an inductive study class that was a two-day class. Um, It's about 12 hours worth of learning how to do inductive study. But people would always ask, can I do it with this Bible or that Bible? And I think yes, you can. You can do it with any Bible you wish to. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 11 in Revelation. When I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the outside, the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for their 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. I'm going to keep reading. There are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the Earth. If it, let's you know what, I'm going to stop right there at verse four. Yeah, the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Let's break this down. He was told to to measure, and he's in the interesting part about this. He says go to it and measure the temple of god right well you have a small issue in the fact if you believe that he's been giving the, given this measuring stick to measure a building the temple of god does not exist because remember in 70 AD the temple was destroyed by the romans remember nero did his things and then tried to blame it on the on the the Christians but see in 96 the temple is not rebuilt yet so he is obviously not talking about the temple in a building so every Sunday we get told by our pastor Eric here who is the church there you go you're getting it so when he refers to the temple of God, that works, he's talking about the believers. The world, the church of God is what he's referring to when he says this. And he says to go there and measure them, measure them, um, and he says who, and the altar, and those who worship there. Obviously, he's talking about the measurement of the people of God. How do you measure people of God? And then the interesting part also is that when he says, but don't measure the outside of the temple. And when he says that, he's definitely referring to those who were never allowed to be in the holy temple when it was intact as a building. Because remember, you had the building, you had the center of the temple, which was the holy of holies, where only the priests could go. Then you had the building itself, where all of those who are Israelites or of Jewish nature and Jewish born they could be in that. And then you had what they called the outside courts. Some places you will see um, other words, and I can't remember what they were, like horse trolleys or something like that. P- places where that they would park sheepfold. It was called the sheepfold, where they would. Uh, bring their sheep in at night for protection when he's referring to and he says in this verse he says uh, do not measure the court outside the temple leave that out for it is given over to the nations they will trample the holy city for 42 months 42 is a big number we're going to get to that in just a second he's being told that the temple of God the church will be in conflict for those 42 months. We get that part. But, but he, when he says to him, he says, do not measure the outside where the people are outside of the church of God. Those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead that we talk about all the time in this. When he talks about the, the timelines, the symbol, this is so symbolic in nature. He has so many symbols going on in this time that this is, there's too much... Too many proofs that he is not being specific about a number, a place, or any objects. So what we have to do is use the Bible itself to go back and find out where these objects and where these symbols and and places came from. So we're going to break this down a little bit for you. So let's look at when he says to measure. And in fact, um, many of the scenes in Revelation come from Zechariah. And so let's look at this. I'd like you to write down just Zechariah 2. And you can look this up later. And in one of the verses there, in two one, it says, um, uh, Zechariah, a man appears with a measuring line in his hand, and he says, come to, he has come to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. Why is he doing this? And the Lord answers in this, there I will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in their midst. God is not literally going to be a square fire around these people. But He's going to, they will be under his spiritual, holy protection. And that's what he talks about in Zechariah 2. That's Zechariah 2, 1 through 5. Okay, Leave the court outside the temple. The outer court of the te- literal temple was the place where the Gentiles were allowed to enter. And they had to stay outside of the building. They didn't get to come in because, remember, the Gentiles were not necessarily unclean, but they were not part of God's people. They were the Gentiles. They get to stay out. The inner sanctuary where the priests could go was the only place that the temple was called the temple. John is being told that the people of God, the church itself, is now made up of Jews and Gentiles, And they're going to find themselves in conflict for 42 months. Let's look at that number for just a second. 42 months. Why 42? How many? So we know that the biggest number of completeness in the Bible, what number? Seven, right? Okay, so in seven years, how many months are there? What's seven times 12? I think it's 84. Call me crazy, right? What's half of 84? 42. Let me just tell you how many times that number 42 comes up just in a few um, examples in here. Okay. 42 months. Here's how the the 42 months break down from verse 2. All these numbers are symbols, by the way, 42 months, 1,260 days, because there is another place where it refers to 1,260 days. That's 42 months as well. It's actually three and a half years of seven, right? Okay. Let's talk about this set of numbers, how many places it's found in the Old Testament. 42 is the number of stages in Israel's journey across the desert that took them to get from Egypt to the promised land. And you find that in numbers 33. In case you're wondering, I'll always give you the scriptures to back this up. Okay? So the number of stages that journey, in other words, remember they went through all these stages as you go through 1st and 2nd Kings and you start reading about their cycles. Remember, first they found God, they loved God, they followed him, and then as they they started to build idols, right? And then after they built the idols, what happened? Their faith, everything started to go wrong, and they began to cry out to God, okay? Then all of a sudden, as they're crying out to God, God says, okay, we're going to go back to being faithful. So, okay, you've repented. You come back. So God brings them back down, he says, okay, now I will bless you again. So then they say, great. They go through 300 years, and then all of a sudden, what happens? They start to build idols, turn to different things, and they said, and this cycle continues. I think I counted once 18 times where that they did this, okay? And almost every time that those stages, those, each one of those circles was a stage, we're talking about the number of 42 is the number of stages of in, in Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land. I find that very interesting. 42 months, three and a half years is the length of time it did not rain when the prophet Elijah was calling the nations to repentance. And if you want to look that up in the New Testament, you can look up um, Luke 4.25 and James 5.17 that was Luke 4:25 and James 5:17. Now Matthew tells us that the genealogy of Jesus, okay, from Abraham to Jesus. Anybody want to know take a guess at how many generations that was? You can say it it's a yeah, you're right, 42. From Abraham to David, you got 14 generations, and that's 42. Yeah, it's just amazing that, and then from David to them, and so in total from Abraham to Jesus, it's 42 generations. Um, And then David, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon, the time of the might of 14 generations. 42 months equals 1,260 days. Three and a half years is found twice in the book of Daniel. So you want to go to Daniel 7, start at verse 25, and then again in Daniel 12, verse 7. There it is in the form again. Time, times, and a half. One, two, and one and a half years. Two years and one and a half of a year. Three and one half years in the book of Daniel. It comes down to this number. The reason that I keep harping on this number is because I want to let you know how much symbolism is more important to understand than statistics. There is a big difference. Too many times, we as as Western American culture, we see a number, that's the number, that's how it is, that's how it goes. In this book, God is trying to use the number to remind us of several events that his faithful people lived through, existed in. And got taken care of. Even in times of tribulation. It's a symbol that stands for the whole time. That the new temple that is the people of God. Are under pressure from the nations. 42 months equals 1260 days. It's the period of time from the day of Jesus Christ. Constituted the new temple. By the shedding of his blood. Until the day when the city without a temple. A new city, which is a temple, comes down out of heaven. Revelation, then he goes on and he talks about, um, in Revelation 12, we'll get into the time of the dragon and all of that stuff. But then let's go to verse 3. In verse 3, he says this. Two witnesses, right? Um, it says and i will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for the 1260 days 42 months clothed in sackcloth anybody know why in sackcloth there's two things about wearing sackcloth in the in the days of in these days huh humility the biggest deal was that they're living in excuse me they're living in repentance So, yes, the two of your answers combined were very good. They're living in its humility and living in repentance and a whole time of just being humble and realizing that they were wrong in the sight of God. That's one thing. But the second thing is these messengers are also bringing the message of repentance to the people, aren't they? Because that's what this message is about right here. This, this message in this book is about taking the message of repentance to the people. All of Remember, we looked at all of the seals in the scrolls. What were they about? Bad things happen to those who don't come to repentance. And then we started looking at the fun part with the trumpets. And that we've gone through the first six trumpets, which not one of them was good news for those who don't believe in God. And so in all of that stuff, now you get before the seventh trumpet, even comes because that's in the next chapter. But before the seventh trumpet comes, you get the two witnesses. Why are these two witnesses who they are? The two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the Earth. Where was the last time we heard about lampstands? Remember this: all the seven churches. But there was seven, not two, right? We had seven churches, seven lampstands. And it talked a lot about how Jesus stood in the middle of the lampstands and, and he was the one who did that. And as long as they kept that thing full of oil and the light would stay on, right? And what kind of oil did they burn? Olive oil. That's correct. So now all of a sudden you got two lampstands and you got two olive trees. Obviously, the olive trees are there for the purpose of filling the oil in the lampstands. But still it comes down to why only two? Because I started looking it up and I thought to myself, why only two? So then I said, okay. Um, John refers to these as the two olive trees and two lampstands. Here John is working with another text. Oh yeah, I need to bring this one up. Zechariah 4 is another Old Testament scripture. The prophet sees a lampstand with seven lamps on it. There's seven again, right? He sees two olive trees on either side of the lampstand, which are obviously there to feed the oil in the lamps On That's in Zechariah 4.3. It turns out that two olive trees are the two anointed ones. And they most likely refer to, this is true, out of Zechariah, the, rever- the two anointed ones. We had two kings that were really faithful at the time. Um, Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. They're not kings, but they refer to King Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. Together, they were the ones that did the whole wall of Jericho thing and all of this stuff that they did to help save the people of Israel. They are the two who are given the word, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that's from Zechariah 4.6. So what is John getting at here? Is he's referring to the two, only two specific individuals that will serve as witnesses in the crunch of the kingdoms colliding. Because that's what's going on in this book. And when we get to Revelation, Big John was over here asking me about Revelation 12, which is probably going to be two weeks from today. But that is the biggest chapter. That's the center of the whole thing because that's the final battle. But in, in this specific instance, when these kingdoms are to collide, there is something going to collide. There is something about these two lampstands and these two olive trees. Like we said, we met these two, all about the lampstands in the Revelation 1 through 3. Was it 1 through 3? Yes, I wrote all these notes in here. I've got to keep them straight. Refers to the church as the bearer of light in a world in darkness, right? That's what the lampstands are for. The reason those seven lampstands were there and Jesus was amidst the midst of them, he wanted those, each one of those churches to be his light into each of their cities, But again, we're back down to there's only two. So let's look at seven churches. Got seven, okay? So let's look at these seven churches. What happened here? So Ephesus lost its first love, so now they can't be one, right? Then you got Pergamum and Thyatira, right? Now you're down to five because Pergamum and Thyatira tolerated the spirit of Jezebel and the evil. Sardis was was wealthy and famous, but self-absorbed; therefore, dead. Laodicea was lukewarm. So out—that takes out five churches. We're left with two. We're left with Philadelphia, and we're left with Smyrna. Remember what he said about them. It was all good. They were the two faithful of all the churches. They were the two faithful. I don't know what percentage that is because I'm not that good in math. If it was 10 and 2, I could tell you it's 20%, but I don't know what that comes out to as a percentage. By the end of this, I'm sure my brother Rick Sundell will come up here and tell me what that percentage is. But anyways, we're going to find out that in those two, more to the point, the number 2 is best because, as used. The testimony of 2 is true. This comes from Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15. John 8, 7, and Matthew 8, 16, 18, 16. Paul even exhorts Timothy that two, uh, every legal matter must be settled by a minimum of two witnesses. Do not receive an accusation against an el- elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 9. The image of the two lampstands and the two olive trees is very solid. It's a picture of our church. It's a picture of the fact that without the, the olive oil of the Holy Spirit, we cannot burn brightly as the church of God. Amen? Wow, wait. Amen? Amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. So we, we find out that long as we are full of the Holy Spirit as the olive oil, it's, it's very interesting that that is the way that we can Stay strong for the Lord and be his witness in a world that's gone dark. And trust me, I don't, I don't say that we're darker than any other day, but it's, it can be a spiritually, we can be in some dark days. You need to quit lighting up. And so we, we have to find out that the best way for us to survive as Christians in the 21st century is to hold on to the holy spirit to stay a bright lampstand we need the olive oil of the holy spirit to keep us burning bright we cannot assume that just by reading this just by hearing it sitting at home doing what we need to do that automatically we're christians It is still the indwelling of the life of Jesus Christ in your life that makes you who you are in him. Amen? Amen. So when we get to the point of today is a bad day. I did not enjoy today. Today was horrible. Today was awful. Today was bad. Well, wait a minute. Lord, it is your day. And you are still who you are. And yes, we are in this world, but not of it. But in the world, you will have tribulation. But remember what he says in John 16, But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's what he tells us continuously. Be, well, be healed because I have overcome the world. We don't ever have to worry about the fact that in everything that we do and say, when we fall down, our knees get scraped, we get weary of the battle. His strength is always perfect, and he's always there. The consequence should be that we grab a hold of that strength by reading of his word, by by it being in the Bible and having the indwelling. Reading doesn't do you any good if you don't understand what you're reading, does it? Because anybody can sit down and read the magazines. I mean, when I'm reading my fishing magazines and stuff, that's very interesting to me, but it's not doing anything to to change the inside of me other than to get me more excited about going down to the rivers and the lakes and do the fly fishing. Because that's the real kind of fishing, is fly fishing. Just thought I'd bring that up for one of my brothers. So we want want you to understand that in in the, the indwelling of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit, the listening and understanding who God is through the worship of His in His music. The, the one common denominator that all of those things have is the fact that it's Jesus Christ filling you up. It is Jesus Christ giving you the strength to get up the next day, even after you've had horrible days before. It is the strength of Jesus Christ that one of my friends says, I love watch being on the sidelines and watching God work in the in the Uh, emergencies of people's life he's a chaplain and he's always reminding me of the fact that it is God that's working through us that's changing the world it is not us we can't do it and he says that sometimes I can't believe the words coming out of my own mouth and in this thing here this the whole thing with the two witnesses who are who are looking for their two lampstands and they're trying to fill them up they're all of a sudden the ones who are wearing the sackcloth living in repentance bringing all of this amazing light and power to the church, right? Then we get to verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now we'll stop there at the end of verse 6. They have the power to stop the rain. Much like in 1 Kings 17, remember when Elijah prayed? Was trying to tell everybody, hey, repent, come back to the Lord. And he started to pray and it did not rain for, take a shot, how long? 42 months, three and a half years. It's almost as if God says, well, it's not a complete plague and it's not a complete um, taking away, but it is a warning because i am only giving them half of the tribulation. Instead of giving them full seven years of rain, we're going to give them just half just to let them know of uh, no rain. We'll give them just half so they can really feel what it's like to have a drought for three and a half. I can't even imagine having a drought for three and a half years with no rain. What would ha- I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have to go to the streams and rivers and lakes to catch the fish. I'll be able to walk out in the middle and pick them up. So it's an amazing thing that they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. Anybody ever heard of that one? Yeah, a smart little tiny little thing of Exodus 4 through 11 where Moses tried to tell Pharaoh, let my people go or else, and then he reached out and did what he do? He turned the Nile to blood. By means of this really dramatic Im- imagery, um, John is trying to say that God is going to do through these two witnesses, the lamp ends, the olive trees, what God did through Moses, Elijah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. God wins in the end. He will win in the end. I mean, if we punch through to chapter 22, we find that out real quick. But like I said, none of us are the ones that read the endings of books first, right? Yeah, okay. I already know who you are. But God is telling him he's going to vindicate his message and he is going to overcome his enemies. There is no choice. They will not win. You know, when God says you will not win, he means you're not. The creator of the universe says, listen to me and you're not going to listen. Because remember, he can wipe it out just as good as he put it together. I mean, when I was a diesel mechanic and I would build engines, I could take them apart just like I could put them together and make them run again. And then if I didn't like the way they ran, what could I do? I could just take them back apart and start over. But but the whole point of what God is doing is he's trying to say, there's something coming. Please get ready for it. Come to me before it's too late. Make up your mind while you can. Make up your mind before that white throne of judgment. Let's make the decision to follow him, to come to God's side, to earn, to get that seal. Not earn it, I take that back. You can't earn it. It's only given by the grace of God. All you have to do is say yes to get that seal. I don't, can't buy my way in. I have, there's many, hmm, be careful, Bill. There's many church people, church places, religious institutions that the more money give, the higher you get in ranking. I'm not saying any names I'm about to get in so much trouble. So my point just is, you cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot work your way into heaven. There's other groups of people that think the more things I do for God, the closer I'm going to get to sitting next to his throne. My dear friends, I just want to be in the vicinity. I want to get through the other side of the gate. Whew, okay, I'm in. Let's go. Because then I get my, the magic rod that never misses a fish. So <laughs> when, when we get to the point of understanding God's purpose in bringing these things of tribulation, trials, and stuff in this book, this particular book, because this is the apocalypse. This is the unveiling of the end of the world. This is how God is trying to tell us all. This is him opening up a picture for John to write down for all of us to see. The reason it's the last book of the Bible, because everything up until this book, he's trying to tell you all of the things that God has done through the lives of people through through all of the years. Then he says, okay, because you have seen that I have done all of these things for you because I love you even when you don't love me, this is what happens at the end. You want to see the climax of the movie, of the story? We're in the middle of it. We're learning about it. This is what we're trying to understand. So now in verse 7, it starts to change. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit, we talked about that last week, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street, the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, magic phrase, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been in a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Don't read ahead. Let's just hold on right there for just a second. Why? Everybody says, wait a minute, I thought you said that God's people couldn't be killed. Remember who, in chapter 7, who was under the altar, when the elder asked John, said, who are these people? And he said, you know, what did he say? Those who came through the tribulation. They were obviously killed for their faith, and because he, he says that to them. They were killed for their faith. John is doing something here that he's done throughout this book. He's introducing a character that is the, is the um, he wants us to be prepared for further revelation. He introduces the beast here to tell us something very magical. And he wants us to understand the real enemy of the witnesses is not humanity. Let's stop there for just a second. The real enemy of those two witnesses who killed him, the beast. How many of us truly believe that we have humanity, humans around us who are our enemies? You want to think that you have enemies that don't believe the same as you in financial situations. They're not of our class, so they're a little bit lower than us because we have more money than they do. Your real enemies can be those who vote for the wrong side of the podium when it comes to election day. Your real enemy can be those who truly believe that you have to understand and know that the government is right about everything and we don't think the government is right about anything. And I'm not saying which side is right or wrong. I'm just saying both sides believe that the other side is their enemy. God can't be any plainer than this the real enemy of the witnesses that killed them is not humanity, but the beast. It's the Antichrist forces behind the scenes. My dear loving ones, I'm hoping that we start to see that to God, the real enemy is the real enemy. Please know it is not your neighbor, your family, your friend who disagrees with you anything on this earth. Because guess what? There comes a day when none of us are no longer on this earth, right? I mean, unless you've got a lifespan that I don't know about, but nobody has lived through eternity except for the one that was resurrected from the tomb. So if God is telling you that humanity is not your enemy don't we then need to learn who is our real enemy? Identify him. Identify those forces of evil that make you think in your head, don't believe them. Identify those forces of evil who come and say, you're not good enough. I have some very dear friends who started an amazing ministry to, to women who've had abortions. These women feel who are, are, are thinking about what they've done, they feel very dejected. And, and I know there are others who don't, and that's, that's neither here nor there right now. But my point is, for those who have the, the guilt of what they've done, the prisoners in the jails who've committed murders of, of family members and everybody else, those who feel like they've let their family down so many times that they can't get back up and they turn to drugs. violence and have addictions of things that are not normal. And we live in a day and age after two and a half years of almost being isolated and, and confined in our in our little tiny homes where that now all of a sudden we feel like we're too afraid to go outside and even say hi to our neighbors. 2019 wasn't like this, was it? The last three years a lot has changed except for one thing. God himself, the words in this book, the spirit of Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We cannot take anything for granted that if somebody has all of a sudden turned against us, turned to hate us, that we would return that hate towards them only because they have turned hate toward us. Your enemy is not humanity. Your enemy is the enemy of God. When we start to realize as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, as Peter calls us, we start to realize that there's a reason that people are acting and doing that. I hate to tell stories about myself, I really do, but there's one time that we lived in Las Vegas. I just got called there to be a a worship pastor at a church in Henderson, Nevada. And I had to go get some guitar strings at this store, at a music store. And I walked in, I said, hey, that's my first time in the store, I just need to get some guitar strings. And he goes, your first time in this store? This is the biggest music store in the city. I said, I understand, I just got here. He said, where'd you come from? California. Well, why'd you come here? I said, well, I'm, I'm a worship pastor at a church down the road down there. And he goes, looks at his manager and says, hey, Jeff, do we have pastors here? And Jeff goes, yeah, we're not sure why, but we got them. And I looked at them both, and the guy looked at me and he goes, so what are you going to do, close down the casinos? I just looked, and, out of my, and this is one of those God moments I talked about. Out of my mouth came these words, and I still can't believe it because I would have never thought of this myself. I said, you know what, I don't have to. Because I have people that we just get up and we play music and we tell stories about who God really is for real people. And as people come to get saved and he comes into their lives and changes their hearts, they'll quit going to those casinos. And trust me, when people quit going to the casinos, they will shut down. I don't have to do anything but talk to one person at a time. By the way, what do you do on Sundays? I don't do anything. Here's your strings. Thank you. Goodbye. You can leave now. I walked out the store and I said, thanks, God, that was fun. But I didn't do it. He did. We can't forget that our enemy is the enemy of God, not humanity. He's really plain and present here. When he says that this beast will come and take for you the witnesses, he's not telling you that you're gonna that we're all going to lose and that everybody's going to lose. That's not what he's saying to you. He's trying to, to give an example. He's giving you a symbol of the fact that the real enemy is not humanity. The real enemy is the enemy of God. And we know this and if you want to write down something real fun, write down Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities, and against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where our true battle is. Remember? And then he goes on to say what? Put on the whole armor of God and we can get into that at another time because each one of those pieces means something very specific but even in the book of Revelation when he's talking about the real enemy being of the true witnesses of Christ he's talking about that beast that comes out of the bottomless pit we'll get more into that when we get into chapter 13 as well but when he overcomes and kills the witch, we want to know why why did he let them do it Let's keep going. John says, the great city which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. (laughs) In 11, uh, we're in verse 8 now. What is going on here? Sodom is the city of humanity at its most immoral and corrupt point, isn't it? Everybody knows. I mean, there's even a crime labeled after it when someone is sodomized. Egypt is a symbolic symbol of, of human civilization with its most oppressive and resistant tendencies. It's the one that, it's the place, Egypt was the place where that they had all the money, all the gold and everything else, and yet they could do whatever they wanted to God's people. The great city you read about always will refer to Babylon, Babylon being all of Rome. Rome was the great enemy in the day. And many cities after it became the great, the great Babylons. And, and there was enemies in the, in the Gulf War that were saying they were changing the name. And I'm not saying his name because I don't even want to put it on the, on the stream. But he called his, said that we were the city, the great city of Babylon. And yeah, but that didn't last very long, did it? I think it was a hundred-hour war that finished it. When John writes, Jerusalem is no more, it has been leveled. You remember in 96, Jerusalem's been destroyed by the everything that happened through Rome and all of the stuff that was going on. Then in verse, 11, verse 9 in chapter 11. Yeah, we're only going to get to 10 verses. We're not gonna, this is interesting. For three and one-half days, the bodies of the witnesses will lay in the streets of the great city. So what happened to 42 months what happened to 1,260 days? Why three and a half days? I would like to submit this. It's still half of seven. It's still half of a complete and all of that. But the amazing part of this three and a half days is now God is telling you the suffering may happen for a while. Those who did the killing, we'll see what they've done. For a short time, they will see it. Right? Symbols that, symbolism breaks it down that it's the period of time when it appears that the Antichrist has defeated the church for a very brief time. So, how many days was Jesus in the tomb? Three. Three. If you went hour by hour, you could add another half a day. Remember whose fight at night woke up in the morning, half day. My point just simply is this. When God uses these kind of symbols to remind us of his power and who he is, he brings us back to images of just suffering and glory that he has brought people through, doesn't he? Because every time, we're the more we're getting into this, the more we're starting to see that God is trying to remind us of how not just powerful he is, but how faithful he is to his own witnesses. Because right now, just like on Saturday, last Saturday we celebrated what? The day after Good Friday, and right, it was, it was or a week ago. It was, it was the Good Friday service, and then we had the Saturday in between. You realize on that Saturday what rejoicing there was in the gates of hell? The enemy thought they won. The demons were partying. Jesus is dead. We're good. We did it all. We are the most powerful thing on the earth now. We're going to rule everything like that. And they probably all got wasted and were crazy hangovers in the morning. On Sunday morning, somebody walks in, shakes them up, and goes, hey, the tomb. (laughs) Um, we, We have a problem. The tomb is empty. And people are running around saying things like, what's-his-name has risen, because he couldn't even say the name. And they're saying, Who is risen? He said, you know, the name we don't ever want to say has risen. All of a sudden, Friday came, and they were partying, but Sunday was coming, and Sunday came, and we have a risen Savior. Now, verse 11, I think it is. Verse 9, no, verse 9, 10, they dwell and rejoice over them, make merry, that's right, verse 11, here we go. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. (laughs) Now, how would you like to hear this from a voice from heaven, and a great loud voice from heaven saying to them, Hey, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Would, would you be nervous if you were an enemy of the two witnesses and rejoicing over them? They're dancing around their bodies, thinking that's it, thinking it's all over, and they won. God breathed life back into them. Says, hey, it's time, come on back up here. I don't know about you, but that gives me such great encouragement. That makes me feel like the holy God that I believe in is going to do things for me that I don't. I, as much as I want to study and as anal as I am about knowing everything about what's going to happen to me in heaven, I probably don't have one millionth of an inkling of what's going to be like when I get there. Everybody says I'm gonna be jumping around, dancing around. I tell you what, I may just be with my face flat on the ground, praising God that I'm there, looking up and just being marveled to be in his presence. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I might ask about a fishing rod, and you know that might that might come out too. John got to ask people stuff, so why don't I get to ask? I mean, John's saying, hey, can I have that scroll? You told the guy, you got the little scroll, they told me to ask for it, give me the scroll. They gave John the scroll. So I'm saying, hey, you know what? God brought me up here to fish. Give me the fishing pole. It's time for me to go. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm just dreaming my own stuff, you know. Like my family says, dad's in his little private world. Let him be there. It's okay. Come up here. And then at that hour in verse 13, and at that hour there was the earthquake. The rest were terrified Gave glory to God in the heaven. And then verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. That's probably where we're going to stop tonight. I'm glad because that's enough. When you think about one night, what we've seen and heard and watched. Two witnesses that represented two of the faithful churches. You notice how God, he, he always brings up the, the, the fact that those who are faithful are just the ones that he just wants to lavish things on. And it's not that they're perfect. That Please don't understand faithfulness and perfectness as the same thing. They are not the same thing. Faithfulness, sometimes you can be the most faithful after one of the worst battles you've ever had. Fallen down, hurt yourself in more ways than you, and you slowly get up back up in your feet, dust yourself off, and then you keep walking for God. That is faithful. Those who have the bruised knees and the, and the scrapes and the, the cuts and the sores from the spiritual battles on their souls, <laughs> those are the Faithful. Remember what happened to Job when the devil said, no, of course you protect him all the time. That's why he's so faithful to you. And God says, okay, go ahead. But you can't kill him. He could only go as far as God would let him go. And then Job still stays faithful all through it. Even though wife, friends, family, everybody turned on him, Job stayed faithful. And at the end, it was, what, a hundred times whatever he had before. Never confuse faithfulness and holiness with perfectness. Being faithful is not being perfect. Being faithful means that you keep getting up after the battle. And as the two witnesses just found out, even after you're faithful and you get killed in the battle, God may just breathe down on you and say, okay, you're done, come on and back up here. Would that be the coolest thing in the world? Think about it, how fun that would be. Oh, that was a good sleep. Hey, guys, see you later. We got to go. Oh, by the way, have fun with this. <laughs> I mean, think about it. What would you be doing if I'm a, I'm a dead witness? All of a sudden, God breathes into me. God says, come on back up here. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, sorry. Just kidding. We ain't dead. We're going back up. Hey, and by the way. <laughs> I hope to see you all up there. Because the way you're going is not going to work. This should prove it to you. And then that next line where he says in verse 13, and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Well, that's enough woes. Can we stop now? And we can't stop now. Can anybody tell me why? You still only had only 7,000 of the people died, and that means there's still people on the earth. Somebody's still got to come back to repentance. God's not done yet. God will not be done until every... Peter tells us God wishes that every single person would be saved. How can we then, as humans on this earth, say, you know what? I'm done with trying to help people. People don't want help. They may appear that way. In in the psychology world, we call it presenting. They present that they don't want help. I truly believe that after you see events like this going on around you, somebody's going to ask for help. Somebody's going to stand up and say, Lord, help me. I need to know right now. The, after the second day, and when you look in the second chapter of Acts, and Peter describes everything going on with the, all of a sudden when the Holy Spirit falls down and, and everything comes over in the day of Pentecost, and now these men are going, look at these bunch of drunken fools, and Peter's standing in the corner tapping his toe. Okay, that's it. Men of Israel, you bunch of idiots. Listen to me. Okay, this is my translation. You bunch of idiots. They are not drunk as you suppose. No. The Spirit of God has come down because the Jesus Christ, by the way, the one that you crucified and put in the tomb, has risen from the dead and now he has sent his comforting. And that's what you're seeing right now is the reflection of God himself. The first words out of those men's mouth was what? Um, Gentlemen, how can we be saved? There was no question as to the power of God coming down. There still will be no question of the power of God coming down. This book, in the book of Revelation, he talks about the fact that everything, everybody for three and a half days, they got to watch these dead bodies of the two witnesses, and they're lying there, and God goes, hey, come on back up. It's time to go. Okay, they may not have mocked all the people on their way up like Bill would have, but... That's beside the point because I just wanted them to know. I would have wanted them to know, say, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. (laughs) That didn't hurt at all. So we're going back up there. We'll see. Of course, I would get in trouble when I got up there probably. You know, God looked down at you and go, Bill, really? You had to put on another drama show? What's wrong with you, dude? Really? But we get to the point of we forget how powerful our God really is even in the midst of all of our gook here on this earth. The mundane things that we have to do every day, the tiring things that we have to do. Moms who are weary for dealing from children all day and dads who've been working all day at home, they're tired. Everybody's tired. And you just get weary of the battle of every single day. But I'm hoping and praying that somewhere, some way, each one of you find strength in this book. Start with the Psalms. Go to the book of Mark, read it through, and watch the amazing things that Jesus did for his people. I mean, I tell people the most encouraging book is the book of Revelation, and they look at me like I've lost my mind because they just look at me like the book of Revelation, that's the scariest book in the Bible. No, it's one of the greatest because it's the most encouraging for us. Dear family, I'm hoping that this week, for the rest of this week until whenever, we get back together again, that you realize that there is a God who loves you so much that even if you were the only person on this earth, Jesus still would have come down here, said hello, went to the cross and died just so that you could be with him and God in eternity. That would have happened. Because that is what happened. Can God talk to each one of us in this world individually? Absolutely. If he didn't, he would have made us all look the same and be the same and think the same. But he didn't. There's no two people alike. How many more Bill Nelsons do you want on this world? (laughs) That'd be kind of scary. But, But on the other side, since he made us all different, he made us all different for a purpose. So that when it comes down to the battles in heaven like this, and the battles on this earth that happen, those that go through everyday battles alongside us and, beside, and, and around us, and we, see, and we see their hurts. There's something that I have gone through, and I've come through, and I'm stronger because I've come through it. And now I see a brother or sister going through the same thing that I was before. What am I going to do? I'm going to pray. I'm going to tell them it's going to be okay. I'm going to hold them up. We need each other. We have to hold on to each other. This is a perfect example of it. The first part of chapter 11 is the perfect example. When those two witnesses came out, they had one purpose in mind, and that's to remind everybody how strong Jesus is and what happens when you are so faithful. Why was there only two lampstands and two olive trees? Because it was the two churches who were the most faithful, filled with the olive of the Holy Spirit that kept burning bright. The others weren't excluded or kicked out of heaven or anything out because of their imperfectness. But God was just saying, when you stay faithful, here you go. You come with me. These two witnesses stayed faithful, blew breath back into their life, and up they went. And he said, come on up. Let's go. This equivalent of just saying, enter into the gate. Oh, we want a faithful heart. Man, I look forward to that day. I won't have any more diabetes, no more migraines, no torn muscles. I'll be able to just run through there as fast as the guy in chariots of fire. Eric Little, I think his name was. And it would be a blast to be able to just realize that now my body is so great that I don't have to worry about anything, no more sickness, no more pain, no more anything. Stick with us in the finish of this book because it's going to be a time of reflection, a time of realizing how encouraging it is. And the mo- next week, the weirdest part of chapter 11 is coming, because the last woe is not a woe that anybody would suspect, but it is a woe. And we need to find out why something so wonderful that happens is a woe to those who dwell on the earth. For those of you online, we're so glad you could join us. We hope that you uh, were blessed by these words, not because of me. Maybe God shared something with you that you want to share with us. If you have questions, you can go to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. And you can share those questions with me. And as I get those questions, I many times bring them on Wednesday nights and share them with everybody because chances are you're not the only ones who have that question. So please feel free to write me in and and just put pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and say, hey, Bill, what about this? And they will get me the message and I will answer them. For everybody who came in tonight, thank you so much for being here. It was a blessing to be with you all. Let me close us in prayer for tonight and then we'll wait until next week. Heavenly Father, each time that I read through this book, I get more amazed and I learn more stuff and I, I receive more of you and for that I am so grateful. I don't know the heart of every person who's going to watch this stream or who's in this building, but you do. So I ask, Lord, that every prayer that is going up to you, that you would hold close to your heart. That you would fulfill the needs that need to be met. That you would touch, the great physician would just touch them with healing power for those who need to feel it. And God, for our world that's going crazy around us, help us to be your image bearers in such a manner that we can share the light of Christ till that one day we can stand up and hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. May your blessings be with those who are watching, those around, and may we be the lights that walk in Jesus' footsteps. We pray in his holy name, amen.